Well, you know, on the cover of the new edition of the book is a picture of, it's the Colored Orphan Asylum at 42nd Street. And it had about 200 black orphans. And on June 13th, 1863, I'm just looking at it now, it's in total flames. It was the first thing the mob attacked. Uh, they set it afire. The 200 orphans were lucky enough to escape. So I said to myself, most of the rioters were Irish. Most of them came over during the famine. Most of them had never seen a black person until they came here. And there's this mob outside this orphanage trying to kill 200 orphans. How does that happen that quickly? How do you generate that much hatred in so short a time? And I think it's part of what's happened in America, the animosity towards African-Americans. It's the American virus. It's like our uh, COVID-19, but it never goes away. That was Peter Quinn, author of Banished Children of Eve, and I'm John Lee. And I'm Martin Nutty, and you're listening to Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation. Today's episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by Oum Art, where you can find original prints, jewelry, home decor, and custom gifts featuring Oum, the first written form of the Irish language. Visit oumart.com, and that's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T.com, and listeners can save 20% at oumart.com using coupon code IRISHSTEW. That's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T.com. Hi there, this is uh, Martin Nutty, and you're listening to Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation, and I am joined today by John Lee. How you doing, John? Doing fine here, Martin, and, and uh, looking forward to talking to our guest today, Peter Quinn. Peter is uh, an author of uh, my candidate for the Great American Novel, uh, Banished Children of Eve, which has just been republished, and we're going to talk about that. But he also wrote a great—I I, I don't want to use the term mystery trilogy because I don't think it does justice to uh, these three books that Peter wrote. In in uh, reverse order, Dry Bones, The Man Who Never Returned, An Hour of the Cat. And then the first book that I read of Peter's, Looking for Jimmy, A Search for Irish America. And before I bring Peter on, I'm going to just relate how I got to know Peter. Uh, Martin likes to play two degrees of separation to figure out who how Irish people connect. But for me... Um, I met Peter at a, at a period of my life when I, I, I say I was wandering in the desert and I met Peter Quinn and along with uh, Paul Doherty and Marianne Pierce, they really opened the door to Irish, the Irish door for me. And it opened up tremendous uh, opportunities. And, and that's basically why I'm here doing Irish stew is due to Peter Quinn and, and a few other folks. We, uh, I worked with him on this effort to save St. Bridget's Church at, in the Lower East Side. And uh, I see from picking up, uh, looking for Jimmy again, that's where Peter's father was baptized. Correct, Peter? Yeah. It was a famine church. It was built in 1848. And my, my family originally, the, the first part of my family arrived in New York and um, Manning's in 1848, and that was their parish. So we were very attached to it. And then Peter brought me in to uh, work with the uh, Irish American writers and artists. And I have to say that experience kind of formed some of the viewpoint I bring into Irish stew, that that uh, idea of uh, an Irish American identity being something related to, but distinct from an Irish identity. And that's some of the things that Peter, uh, uh, Martin and I look at here on Irish stew. 
And, you know, it's funny, I, Peter, I was just thinking as I was talking about in my mind, uh, coming up with that idea of the Irish American identity related to, but, but, but different from, I almost had this sort of old Testament, new Testament kind of view of, you know, Irish America related back to, 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 uh, Irish kind of like, you know, the, the people of the book, but, uh, you know, uh, separate identities, uh, beyond that sort of basic, uh, shared. One of the most shared things, at least in the 19th century, uh, you know, I grew up in the Bronx, um, Everybody would Italian, Irish, Jewish, but our total sense of Irishness was the Catholic Church. My parents didn't read Joyce or Yeats. They said Irish step dancing, you know, that was the kids who couldn't run faster than their parents. Nobody wanted to do it. Uh, then the Clancy brothers kind of blew on the flames, but it was a, it was a tenuous connection. At still, we thought of ourselves as Irish. And that had been the main uh, organizing principle of the transatlantic Irish community was the Catholic Church. A lot of the, cult the culture, the songs, the stories, a lot of them were lost. And it's interesting, one of the first times I really identified as Irish was reading Portrait of the Artist, because the education he had was the exact same one I had parochial schools in the Bronx with the, with the Sisters of Charity, the Jesuits, and the Christian Brothers. And I could immediately identify with that. But as for, you know, Irish history, I went to parochial school from uh, grammar school, high school, college, and graduate school. All of them were post-famine schools uh, established by orders, mostly staffed by Irish Catholics. I never heard the, word, I, the words Irish famine. It wasn't part of who we were. And, you know, this image of the Irish obsessed with their own history, that was not, it didn't happen to be the fact. I mean, there, there were kind of... Um, the ornaments of Irish history they might have been interested in, but not the real thing. We had an ashtray in the house with a quin coat of arms on it. It was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> Peter, that's that's so that's so similar to a, another guest we had, a writer named Jack Byrne from uh, Liverpool. Now, Liverpool is an intensely Irish city, yeah. and he grew up, it, but for him it was Catholic culture. Yeah. not Irish culture. And they were that much closer to Ireland and closer right. to the immigration. And even there, they did not think in terms of Irish. It was in yeah. terms of Catholic Protestant cultures. Well, I was, and my mother was in her eighties. And uh, I remember I heard over the years, I never even thought about it. her father was from Chrome, Seamus Murphy. And he was raised as an Irish speaker. <clears throat> he never spoke the language in front of them. Occasionally, to amuse them, he'd say his prayers in Irish. But, you know, <laughs> and I think to myself, I'm, I'm not close to the Irish language. We lost it that quickly. I have no memory of it. It's kind of amazing. Peter, um, it was interesting that you kind of mentioned Joyce earlier on. And uh, I find it interesting that were, I'm sure the nuns would have disapproved of your reading anything about Joyce. Um, and I was explaining to some of my family back in Ireland um, Banished Children of Eve, uh, apparently they, they haven't read it. Uh, yeah. So there's there's a possibility of new of uh, new customers there. And I tried to describe the book to them. And I kind of struggled a little bit with that description. And to some degree, uh, when I started reading the book, it felt like I was being immersed in 19th century New York with all sorts of kind of foreign things to my modern mind, which reminded me a little bit 
of, you know, reading Ulysses. Mm. Um, was that a model? Was that in your mind when you started writing this book that you were going to try and immerse people in a, this strange 19th century world? Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting to say that because that to me is, it's so, I never even say that, that because it sounds so pretentious, yep. bring in Ulysses. But the book starts in um, June 1904, which is not an accident, um, which is when Ulysses is situated. And yeah, I did have that in mind. I, I would not even pretend to be in the same alphabet as Joyce. But uh, that was the image, that was the model I used. I kept, I read Ulysses several times. The first time I read it, I had a great, I was in graduate school. I had a great professor who took me through it. So it was never a mystery to me. Uh, and I kept it in the bottom drawer of my desk because I had never written fiction. And I just, every time I would get stuck, I would open it and just read a passage somewhere. And what it always told me is you can try anything as long as you make it work. And also these multiple viewpoints of things that I felt in the novel Writing about 19th century New York, I couldn't capture one character. And, you know, I started with, it was going to be the story of the Irish immigration, which, you know, a million people came into New York in the space of 10 years. It was an incredible deluge of poor, uneducated people. Uh, I, I started with that, and then I originally wanted to write a history. And then I decided, you know, I couldn't reach the people I wanted to reach because 99% of human history is not in the records. So the only way I could reach these voiceless people would be in a novel. Uh, and then I went to Ulysses to kind of learn, what, 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 how do you do this? What do you structure? What are the rules? And I found the rules of what you make them. Mm. You know, I never, read, I never went to a writing class or read a writing book because I did go, I did uh, read books on writing and I said, well, this is how they write a novel. I don't want to write a novel the way somebody else writes a novel. And I was really blessed with being ignorant. <laughs> I didn't know enough. And I, did, I had a full-time job, so. But, you know, to get back to, I started with Irish characters, but New York in the 1840s were becoming a cosmopolitan city. It had been a kind of Yankee trading post. And all of a sudden, these groups were coming in and colliding with one another. And the oldest ethnic group in New York next to the Dutch are African-Americans. And when the Irish came in, that was the group that they were on a par with, African-Americans. So I said, how can I write and not bring in African-Americans? Well, that's a big leap. I'm not African American. And then I had an Irish maid, and I said, "Well, I have to have a, I have to have an African American counterpart. I have to have a black woman." And that stopped me for about a week. I said, "I how am I going to write a black woman?" And what I found is, if you let go, this is my feeling about novels. The whole human experience is in us all. If you go deep enough, you can connect to it. And the thing about America, they now have this thing about appropriating other people's cultures. That you know, right. Uh, white people shouldn't write about black cultures. White people shouldn't write about Hispanic. Hispanics shouldn't write about blacks. My feeling is in America, everybody should write about everybody else. It's it's like that's our national right. We don't have a national culture. We have all these other cultures, and we should be learning, as well as learning our culture, we should be in other people's culture. It's kind of interesting, that notion, because, you know, uh, the phrase or multiculture. Uh, multicultural is spit out by many, like it's an anathema, you know, in right. some of our political dialogue. Um, and, you know, one of the other big things that's floating around in our political dialogue right now is cancel culture. So right. if you say something that's wrong, and I know, and you know, before we hit the record button today, we kind of talked about 
uh, your recent conversation with Lenny Underwood, um, where you're basically talking about the use of the N-word. How do you write a 19th century novel without using the N-word? And so, you know, um, how do you see that now? Like, if you were writing the novel right now, would you still go ahead with that? And would you be worried that it would be received poorly right now? I would still go ahead with it, and I would I would worry. It was great to talk to Lenny. Lenny's a really accomplished African-American actor and performer, and he, he had the same opinion. He said, how are you going to write a book about 19th century New York rioting a race riot and not use the language that was used at that time? I mean, you know, you have to be sensitive, but at the, at the same time, you have to be truthful and accurate. And it's not a gratuitous use of the word. You read anything in the 19th century, uh, accounts of people's lives and stuff. Stephen Foster was a great American songwriter, right? Oh, Susanna, the first chorus is, uh, you know, totally offensive. And it's never played, but that's how common it was. And how do you get away from it? And it is a terrible word. It's, you know, it's a traumatic word. been used to insult, lynch people, oppress them. But that's history. I mean, at, at that level, if you're going to deal with history, it's not to endorse it. It's to say that this is what this is the way it sounded. It should sound offensive. And I grew up in an Ireland where that word was used regularly, but more as a abstraction. Right. Uh, it didn't carry quite the same loaded history that it did in America. Now I'm ashamed. Yeah. Uh, that that was used so frequently. Right. And I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, my very first year in New York in 1983, I was working as a security guard at St. John's University. And there was a lot of old Irish cops that were retired that were also working as security guards there. One of them heard that I was Irish and we were working to, you know, or it was pretty obvious I was Irish. And we were working together one day and he kind of beckoned me in and he said, said, Martin, said, you know what the difference is between an, Iri- an Irishman and a black man? And the response was, Irishmen are just simply the N-word turned inside out. And I was just shocked. Right. Uh, but it was almost like I was seeing the tail end of, let's say, the mindset that your novel yeah. uh, portrays. It was still alive there. Now it's been driven underground, I think, a bit more until the advent of Mr. Trump, which has kind right. of allowed some of these kind of creatures to crawl out of the uh, the nether regions of the American world. Um, but I, I think it goes to the, the where I'm going here is, is that we have to come to terms with our history. Right. We can't escape from our history. We can't pretend that it doesn't exist. And so how does that work with this kind of overriding concern that people have with cancel culture? How do you deal with an ugly history? Yeah. Well, you know, one thing when I was writing this novel, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to write a novel, I didn't want to be on the high planes of things and talking about theories and generals and president. I wanted to be with people in the streets, with servants and soldiers and longshoremen. What was it like for them? Because when you get to that level, it's so much more human. And of course, the, you know, people forget the interactions that there were. Once people came to New York, like the Irish came to New York, they were no longer just Irish. Everybody who steps off in New York is they're up with Jews and Puerto Ricans, 
you're not who you are. <laughs> you're negotiating in ways you didn't have to before. Uh, and, you know, that, that's the dynamism of New York, and it's the, um, it's the t- a lot of tensions are there. But in, in many ways, it's a, it's a good tension. It's a good thing. It's the creation of something new. And it's never easy. You know, we, we get a kind of a Pollyanna view of history. Oh, people should get along. The races should love each other. W.H. Uh, Auden said we must love each other or die. Well, we're not going to love each other. That's just a fact of history. But we can learn to live with each other. We can learn to respect one another. We can learn to give other people space. Even, you know, the thing with gays. When I was a kid in the Bronx in the 50s, you could get killed if, if people thought you were gay. And, and now it's ridiculous. The creation of the other they're not, they're not, they're not other, they're, they're us. You know, we're different in ways, but we're the same, basically. We're just the same human animal that came out of Africa 100,000 years ago at, at, at that level. You know, we always invent excuses. I think human beings are the most in, uh, ingenious species inventing reasons to kill each other. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, in retrospect, you see, um, you know, the creation of racism, I mean, it's a long story. I don't want to get into the academic discussion of race, but um, it's a pretty amazing creation. Peter, when uh, looking at uh, your book, Looking for Jimmy, uh, there's a line here about putting a truth ahead of tribe. Go ahead. And uh, that seems to be you know, what we're talking about right now. Well, you know, on the cover of the new edition of the book is a picture of it's the colored orphanage island at 42nd Street. And um, 43rd Street, where the Century Club is now. And it had about 200 black orphans. Uh, and on June 13th, 1863, you can, I'm just looking at it now, it's in total flames. It was the first thing the mob attacked. Uh, uh, they set it on fire. The 200 orphans were lucky enough to escape. So I said to myself, you know, most of the rioters were Irish. Most of them came over during the famine. Most of them had never seen a black person until they came here. And there's this mob outside this orphanage trying to kill 200 orphans. How does that happen that quickly? How, how, do you, how do you generate that much hatred in so short a time? And, you know, I think it's part of what's happened in America, the uh, animosity towards African-Americans. It's like been there from the beginning. It's the, it's the American virus. It's like our uh, COVID, COVID-19, but it never goes away. It, it mm. goes back and it comes back, but it never totally goes away. And I mean, it's a brutal history. The lynchings in the there were lynchings in New York in 1863 mm-hmm. in this riot. The difference with the riot, the draft riots, was that um, the civil authorities didn't step back and allow it to happen. And most of the people killed were not black. And the battles in the streets was also a social revolution. And a lot of the people who were in this riot were uh, Irish immigrants. And I always say this riot is unable to be understood unless in the context of the famine, who these people were, the way they're striking out in all directions, the anger, the fury, the willingness to get killed in the streets to attack newspapers, the wealthy. That's why it's to me such an interesting chapter in American history. I also say, you know, Americans are great for recreating civil war battles. These people go to Gettysburg, they dress up like soldiers and they're in Antietam. We never commemorate the draft riots. There are no reenactions of the draft rights because we don't have to. We have Ferguson. We have rioting now in the streets over the same things as the draft riots. It's the perennial story in American history. And it's American history. Whether Do we solve it? I, I think we might. It might take another generation. But I do think 
there is progress being made. And we're trying to do something nobody's ever done before, create this multi-ethnic society where people, one group isn't getting power to kill the other. I mean, you know, this is a pretty good experiment, I think. Yeah, I think it's it's easy to be from a country uh, to, to, you know, kind of decry racism in America uh, if you're from a country that has no races, you know, right. if, you're, if you're the only race, it's, it's pretty easy to be, uh, you know, above above the fray and uh, yeah. not, not have any racist tendencies. But uh, I get a kick out of the French don't consider themselves racists. <laughs> yeah. Give me a break. You helped invent it. Uh, you you touch on something there that I was gonna, I was going to go to about the the famine, and you know the the driver that sent all these Irish to our shores, uh, and there was something from uh, Jimmy the Jimmy book there about um, the the famine and you know the effects how the effects insinuate themselves uh, across uh, you know in institutions and families uh, played out across generations. Right. Yeah. Um, my family came in the um, 1848. You know, I, I, I knew nothing. One of the reasons I wrote a novel was I knew nothing about them. Uh, I knew they came from Kilkenny. I knew they had relatives in Fordham and who gave them the passage money to come over. But, you know, that was about it. And I found out all this stuff. Um, I had relatives. My grandmother was one of uh, uh, five children, we were told. She was one of ten. I've died. I have a, a, a grand aunt, great grand aunt, two of them, both died at age one. Anastasia and Catherine Manning are buried in Calvary Cemetery right across the East River without tombstones. And this was not part of, of the family history, but all this stuff happened and was never talked about. That's why, you know, that was never mentioned in my family. Um, and that was a, true, I think, about most families that came in the famine. They just put it behind them. It was not something to be remembered. It was not something they wanted to give their children. It was a humiliating event, and they wanted to move on. My mother was a great uh, historical Stalinist. She was always destroying records. Uh, <laughs> I, she said two things to me once. I, I, I said, you know, we have lost relatives. And she said, of course, but most of them are lost for a reason. <laughs> and the other thing, she said, she was always like, what do you want that baggage for? We don't need that baggage. And when I published Banished Children of Eve, um, she was 88. She was an educated woman, been a classics major in college. And my sister said, you better call mommy. Uh, she had read the book. And she got on the phone. I said, well, what do you think of it, mom? And she said, it's a little disappointing to reach my age and discover you have a son with a pornographic imagination. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said to me, we didn't know people like this. We never knew people like this. I said, yeah, but I think we came from them. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, but you know this was and people always say lace curtain respectability lace curtain they use it as a pejorative well you know people struggle to be middle class and respectable there's nothing wrong with that mm. my grandmother her mother mm. Catherine Murphy got her first pair of shoes when she went to first communion mm. and they put that behind them uh, you know there was no romanticizing poverty they rarely spoke about Ireland uh, nobody ever went back but, you know, my grandfather's an Irish speaker, so go figure, uh, as they say in the Bronx. Go figure. You know, it's interesting, this kind of uh, drive for respectability yeah. you know, by certain Irish people. But, you know, what I really like about your book is, is that it doesn't shy away from the warts. Right. It opens up essentially with an early morning drinking session. 
at yeah. least Jimmy Dunn, who's one of the main characters, is observing the Irish, you know, heading off to work. Yeah. And before they, they, you know, hit the job, you know, they need a couple of shots of whiskey to get things, you know, going, either to warm themselves up right. or to stop the shake in their hands. Right. And so I can imagine how your mother might be appalled, you know, by this kind of portrayal yeah. of Irish people. Right. And Irish people themselves, anytime around St. Patrick's Day, you will hear this horror of the depiction of Irish people as a people that is basically, you know, described by their drinking habits. Yeah. But I think in every kind of um, uh, stereotype, there is a, a strong element of truth. And it's kind of nice to see you're not running away from that. And I think we have to be front-footed about it, you know. Yeah, well, you know, Irish history is, uh, American Irish history is very under-examined. Um, people always talk about they take Irish history, but, you know, the, the Irish have been a significant part of American history. Uh, until Ireland House was established at NYU 25 years ago, there were no programs that even looked at Irish-American history. It was not, and it was white history. That's what it came under. And that's another thing that drives me crazy is whiteness because, you're, there were all these different groups. Jewish Americans did not have the same experience as Irish Americans. Irish Americans were not as same experience as the Rockefellers and the Harrimans and those other families. It's, it's a rich, dismissing it under that one name and impoverishing it like that, I think is an insult to history and a disservice to, a, to all of us. You know, when I, um, it's funny, we, you write a book like this, uh, you know, but I shouldn't even novel of Civil War in New York. So I get invited to a vet Irish American veterans group. They hadn't read the book yet. <laughs> <laughs> I got there and uh, they said they wanted to uh, have me for lunch. They had me for lunch. Uh, they were totally insulted by this. I was writing about prostitutes and thieves. And what about the troops? Of Getty? Why was I putting down my own people? I said, you know, I'm not, I'm trying to tell the story that had happened. I'm not putting them down. I'm, I'm giving them back faces and voices and I'm giving back their faults and virtues and just make dealing with human beings. Then I went down to um, do a book event in Philly and uh, had a nice crowd. A professor, African-American professor from Drexel got up and he laid it to me about, you know, using the words like this and um, appropriating people's cultures. And I was just perpetuating racial stereotypes um, under the, pretext that I was trying to create an artistic work. So about a year later, I thought of the answers I would have given him, but it was one of those things that was stunning. I mean, both cases, I was, I, I just wrote a book. <laughs> I just told the story that I wanted to tell. And, you know, people would, they'd start telling me about, well, you should have done this. I said, well, yeah, you go write your own book. I'm not stopping from doing that. You want to tell the story of 19th century New York and not use the N word? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, hey Peter, you, you you mentioned saying some you know maybe unkind things about the the Irish tribe. How how about this comment here? This in the early stages of banished children of Eve. Uh, tr tr trusted one of his own, forgetting that while the sons of Israel produced the true and original Judas, it was the Irish perfected. It was the Irish perfected the type, spewing forth rank after rank of Judases in every generation. Ouch. <laughs> The informer, always the informer in Irish history, you know, uh, not going on. Um, every revolution that there was, there were informers in, in it and um, they played that role. Uh, you know, I think that's a, that's a uh, stalwart um, image from Irish history, the informer. 
Well, I'm interested, you know, the book itself is interesting because it doesn't have a central character that's on stage all the time. There are multiple characters, you know, can list, you know, Jimmy Dunn, the thief slash, slash confidence man, but you also have Dagger Hughes, uh, Archbishop Dagger Hughes floating around there. You obviously have Stephen Foster floating in there. So you have fictional characters, you have real historical figures, figures and then you got a guy like Waldo Capshaw also floating through this and I think one of the early criticisms of the book was it lacked a central character Um, and I I think one of your responses to that well the central character is actually New York City Um, and so to tell the story uh, it it seems you you pulled all these together Um, was that how you set out to do it no, I never had that. I set out with, with nothing. Began with a conversation in a bar. I had no um, outline. Uh, I just kind of characters started to come to me, and I couldn't stop them. And that just came to me. And the, the thing, you know, I worked for a while on the title, and uh, I said a prayer as a child that I've always loved. Uh, Salve Regina, Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and I hope to thee we cry, poor banished children of Eve. So that was in my head. And then I said, you know, for, what, all these people don't share a lot, but they're all coming to New York as exiles. They're all banished from somewhere else. And they're all under that same uh, rubric. And the thing that's, as you said, is that I thought of the center of the book is New York City. Nobody comes to New York and isn't changed by it. People are elevated, demoted, destroyed, enriched, but they don't, they're not the same. The city, the city changes them, I and they change the city. And, you know, I have somebody like um, Hughes from uh, Ulster, a churchman trying to organize the Catholics of New York who were totally disorganized. They're not the Catholics of the later 19th century. Or Charles Bedford, who's a a rich broker, but he starts as a farm boy on Eastern Long Island. Or Eliza, who's from a black community on Staten Island. Everybody is coming from somewhere else to find what they're looking for, which is a, a, a way to live that they can enjoy and be happy in. The simple things that human beings want and are so evasive for many people. Peter, uh, somewhere I picked up a kind of an evolution of the Irish American personality in your in your writing, and uh, it's a sort of evolution from uh, Patty to Pat to Jimmy. Right, and I think in Banished Children of Eve, we're in the Patty stage. Absolutely. Uh, the Pat stage was to come, and uh, maybe you could take us through that kind of evolution of, of an Irish personality or, or image. Yeah, well, you know, if you, uh, there's a famous American cartoonist, Thomas Nast, and he, um, he's the one who invented Father Christmas, and he really disliked the Irish intensely. And he uh, did these cartoons, uh, they're, they're sem- simians, semi simians, and that was the image of the Irish. The Irish were considered another race. It's hard to believe. There was a Charles Learning Brace. He founded the Children's Aid Society. He was a correspondent of Darwin's, and they were into skull measuring in the 19th century. And he has a book published in the year of the draft rights, 1863, Races of the Old World. And he says the Irish brain size is between that of an Ethiopian and an Englishman. <laughs> I'm not making this up. <laughs> the book the public library. You can go. And I mean, that was a common perception that, you know, Irish wasn't a nationality, it was a race, and an inferior race. A hud carrying race is one person called. And a threatening race. They weren't making it up that most of the criminals in New York were Irish. 
you know, a rural people, uneducated, pouring into the cities. Well, guess what? They always create a criminal class. And that began to go away. It, it lasted a long time. And then as other immigrant groups started to come in, Jews and Italians were even more foreign because at this, by this time, the Irish beginning to look like Americans. They became uh, kind of favorite. Amer- it was like, look at this ethnic group. They behave. You should learn to be like them. They're, they're maids, cops. They're, they're, you know, they have some bad habits, but they're really trying. They're hardworking. They go to church. Uh, so that's Pat. And then, um, you know, it's like kind of Pat O'Brien and the, yeah. and the, the Catholic Church reinforced that. They wanted everybody to think we're the, you know, we're not like them. We're, we're very pious and holy. If we're going to, we might not do everything we do right, but we do it out of view. And then the Irish became the quintessential urban group in America. Jimmy, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Cagney is the great representation of that. I think the great Irish American movie is Public Enemy. Uh, and Cagney just, you know, the way he walked, he had, he kind of danced when he walked and he was, he could smile, but there was a lot of menace. He was this kind of epitome of urban America. Uh, and even rap people like Jimmy Cagney. And then there was Jimmy Walker, who was the mayor of New York in the 1920s, who was a professional songwriter. He was a rascal, but he was really handsome and well-dressed and sophisticated and everybody loved him. So it was, now it was Jimmy who was the he was the image of urban America. And, and another interesting part of that is the Irish were the most rural people in, in Western Europe in, at the time of the famine. Uh, and they made this overnight transfer to cities and became the most urbanized people in the United States. African-Americans were the most rural people in America. They were a joke. And overnight, the Great Migration, they became the quintessential urban group. Those are the two groups that made that great leap. Essentially, with many of the same aspects of their cultures. Peter, I'm, I'm just going to take you back a little bit to the book title again, uh, Banished Children of Eve. Uh, I do remember that prayer. Um, I am a lapsed Catholic, and so I was, I think you refer to it as the Salve Regina. Right. I refer to it as the Hail Holy Queen, which is obviously the, the, Eng- the English version right. of the uh, opening line. Um, unlike you, I loathed that prayer. Really? Um, but, you know, people could say that's because, well, that's because you're a lapsed Catholic. Um, but there's a particular line, of, line in it that kind of really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, and if you remember it, there's a line that says, mourning and weeping yeah. in this valley of tears. Right. And it struck me as a line oh, that kind of reflects, oh, poor me, we are in this horrible place, et cetera, et cetera. And it reflected to me, to some degree, the Catholic view of the world, the Irish Catholic view of the world, is we're in this horrible place and we're victims, so a victimhood. Uh, can you talk a bit about the Irish and victimhood and how that yeah. out a little well, bit? You, know, you might have a different uh, appreciation of the prayer if you were in a coffin ship on the way to America. <laughs> or, uh, if you were an African-American in the colored orphan asylum when the mobs were attacking you know, I, my perception of life is that at some level, we all are mourning and weeping in this veil of tears. Mm-hmm. I guess I just have a dark view of life, but um, uh, th- that's part of what it is to be. We're all going to die. We're going to watch the people around us who we love die. We're going to crumble as, not to put, not to ruin your day, but <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, you know, well, I say you know, there's a vic- there's a, in America, there's a cult of um, victim. Who suffered the most? You know, uh, because African-Americans suffered this. Well, we suffered more than that. Or, you know, the Jews, the Holocaust. Well, the famine was worse than the Holocaust. Well, it wasn't, but the different events to begin with. You don't have to compete to see who suffers the most. I always loved Pete Hamill. He said, you know, Jews and Irish are always talking about how much they suffered. He said, when the end of the world comes, it's going to be, uh, the headline of the New York Post is going to be, end of world arrives, Jews and Cal- Jews and Irish to suffer the most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Well, there is, um, victimhood is not just, it's, it's interesting because in the 19th century, nobody wanted to be a victim. <clears throat> I talked about the ashtray with the coat of arms. Everybody wanted to be um not have suffered, be from the superior class, the um, the colonizing classes. And now it's kind of reversed. The, 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 the true authenticity is connected to how much your ancestors suffered. Uh, speaking, speaking of ancestors and the kind of mix we have here in New York, I think the first time, Peter, I ever encountered you was at some event that had to do with the fire department. That was your arraignment, John. That day. <laughs> I, see, I get these things mixed up. Oh, do tell, Peter. Uh, I want to hear this one. And uh, you, you talked about uh, the fire department as not, not being an Irish institution any longer, but there was an Irish ethos yeah. that, that was still playing out. Uh, and, and in uh, uh, Looking for Jimmy, you say, uh, the Irish no longer a living part of urban America but uh, retain, but urban America retains a major part of of Irish that's in, in its genetic compo- composition. Yeah, the Irish domination of um, civil service is an interesting story because the one thing that when the famine immigrants come over, there's no entrepreneurial tradition that they're part of. They don't go opening a lot of businesses or try to go to Wall Street. The one thing that the utterly lacked was security, and it becomes you know getting a job and keeping a job. That's what political machines were about. Uh, that's what the civil service is about. That's what the unions were about. That's the Catholic Church was about. It was about getting something and keeping it. Not the aspirations were not great. You know, a Bill Kennedy, a brilliant writer, his novels, Pulitzer Prize winning novels about Albany, always said. There was only one crime for the Albany Irish, because they're always accused of corruption. He said that was to be hungry. <laughs> and you know, people traumatized who hadn't, they weren't talking about the trauma, but you don't have to talk about trauma. You know, any psychiatrist can tell you that. It's just there. It's in you. And I think there was a collective trauma for the uh, um, famine immigrants, and they came over. And the whole principle of Irish immigration was organization, reorganization. They were, they were uh, a leaderless mob when they arrived in America. And the business was getting things back together. That the rural island had dissolved; it was crushed and was put on ships and sent to a like another planet, like Mars. Uh, and it was a mocking, jo- remarkable job of reorganization. When you think of it, the Catholic schools and churches and universities and hospitals and orphanages, the unions, the political machine, Tammany, which is remembered for corruption, but it was a lot more than that. And um, they didn't really, they were assimilating, but at the same time, keeping their distance. They were going to assimilate on their own terms and not lose their identity. They, they clung to it, uh, or, or what they took to be their identity, which was mostly the church. And it wasn't until really 1960 with Kennedy's election that those, that, that kind of bonds began to really go away. You know, I always say what keeps ethnic groups together is not self-love. 
you get inside any ethnic group. People say, oh, the Jews stick together, you know? Well, you get inside Jewish friends, everybody dislikes everybody else. <laughs> you know, he said that if a, uh, if a Jew is stranded on a desert island, he builds two synagogues, one that he goes to and one he would never set foot on. <laughs> <laughs> but, so it's the enemy that keeps people together. And when the enemy goes away, you know, well, you don't have to stick with people anymore. And I think the Irish, by 1960, 100 years, took a century after the famine, looked around and said, well, you know, we can be anything now. We don't have to. And, I, you know, there's, uh, there's Irish, Amer Irish Americans are an evolving thing at this point, but it's not what it was. It's not when I was in the, in the Bronx in the 1950s when I was growing. There's not yeah. this kind of solid culture that took a suspicious look of everything outside it. Mm -hmm. My kids, I said, uh, uh, we raised them in Hastings above New York City. My wife and I said, they're the first Americans in the family. Mm -hmm. They didn't go to Catholic school. They don't, you know, really identify. Well, they think themselves Irish, but they're, they're you know, Americans. This is the first time. If you ask somebody in the Bronx in the 50s, what are you? Nobody ever said, I'm an American. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. Jewish. I'm Irish. You know, later, I'm Puerto Rican. It was not, it was not part of who we were. So, Peter, um, you kind of mentioned uh, the political machines. Mm. And what I was fascinated about in your book is you wrote a 600-page no novel, which actually talks very little about the Irish and politics. Mm. Is that simply that they hadn't gotten organized enough at that point? Is that a reflection of history that they had not gotten organized enough to really influence politics at that point? That's a later phase to come along, right? Uh, yeah, that's that's a later phase. You know, um, Tammany is not controlled by the Irish at this point. You know, Fernando Wood, who was the mayor of New York, who was actually had been a nativist, uh, disliked immigrants and then switched. Uh, Tammany was using the Irish because they were the vote. Uh, but they weren't running it. And then after that was um, Tweed, who was friendly to the Irish, but he wasn't Irish. He was Scott-American. And then uh, Honest John Kelly. In about 1875, the Irish take over Tammany, and they make it into the greatest political machine in American history, and it essentially lasts until around 19th, until uh, Roosevelt. And it's, you know, people, there, there's, people, I'm always explaining Tammany, and people think I'm excusing it. I'm not. Um, but, they were in a city that was totally corrupt. I mean, Wall Street, the, the Gilded Age. But w they were dealing with people in the gutter. Um, and they were naturalizing citizens. And they were teaching people how to vote. And by the 1920s, when Al Smith became uh, a big figure in Tammany Hall and Robert Wagner, who became United States Senator and uh, Al Smith governor, they passed, they essentially passed the New Deal. Progressivism didn't go anywhere until it became united with Tammany Hall. That's a forgotten chapter in American history that uh, Terry Galway wrote a really terrific book, Machine Made, Progressivism and the Tammany and the Triumph of Different Kind of Politics. And uh, it's a book really worth reading because it's, so, it's such a wonderful revision. It's a way to look at it that you never saw it before and how rooted it was in Irish history. That's what I like about your book a lot is – there ain't any black or white hats in this book. And so thematically you're saying that Tammany was good and right. it was bad, yeah. right? And right. your My characters, like I look at a guy like Jack Bulkai, who has a beautiful African-American girlfriend, right? Uh, but he is a coward and right. he is a drunk uh, right. and, and he is a genial guy, a life with a party. And, you know, 
being able to kind of communicate all all of those things, all that complexity, all of that nuance is what I think really makes the book special. Did you kind of think about that? Like I said, I'm going to write a gray hat book because not everybody's like our way. I didn't think about it, but I, you know, I just, I found it hard to write um, villains. You know, I, I, I always think, well, in a secular way, um, novelists are God. They create characters, they give them free will, and they watch them do what they're going to do, and all of them are imperfect. Um, so, you know, a guy like uh, Charles Bedford, who, who I really like, I didn't know what's going to happen when I started. You know, Bedford's a uh, adulterer, embezzler, and murderer. <laughs> but I kind of liked him. And he's not, he's that, all those things, because he has to be uh, to survive. And, you know, you, I, I'm sympathetic to him, but he's not a, he's not a good person. He escapes. Uh, but he doesn't do this like gratuitously because he wants to commit evil. He's always trying to get out of some box that he's put himself in. And it's just to understand people. It's to understand, you know, all of us, for some reason or another, for what we do, which, which again is not to excuse it, but say, I understand why this happens to people. And they're not just coming out of some pure motive to do evil. Peter, Peter, you talked about like, you know, the pure motive to do evil. And we talked about the politics uh, and the, the good and bad in Tammany and, and in uh, the Jimmy book that you quote someone else saying uh, how the Irish turned politics into a profession right. and uh, a profession in your family. And for you, to a certain extent, uh, bring us up to uh, bring us up to your arrival in Albany and your, your yeah. work for uh, two, two of our uh, New York state governors. Yeah, well, I was, you know, my uh, grandfather, uh, Patrick Quinn from Terrells and Tipperary, um, he was uh, president of Central Federated, Central Federated Union of New York City. He was a union organizer. He had been in the Pullman strike, uh, and he was a, a Democratic, um, leader in the Democratic Party. My father was a, uh, he was an assemblyman, a congressman, and then a judge. Uh, so we were raised, you know, the Catholic meant Democrat and Democrat meant Catholic it was like two things you do. And my father always said, you vote Democrat and go to Mayo. She can live here. Otherwise, you know, hit the highway. Uh, and then I didn't want to be part of politics. I, I had seen it and I didn't enjoy it. So I went a different way. I went to um, history major in Manhattan college. Then I left. And after I graduated, it was a Vista volunteer. It's a long story. Archivist it was the sixties, right? You're trying to, <laughs> your life together. And then I was at Fordham getting a, a, a doctorate in history, and I wrote an article in a, a magazine that somebody gave to Governor Carey. And uh, he had actually known my father, so he recognized my name, and they authored to let me write a speech, the Fordham University Law School speech. I had never written a speech in my life. Uh, if I knew uh, then what I knew now, I probably would have said no, but uh, desperate men do desperate things. So I wrote it, and they really liked it. And then I wrote another one, I liked that. So uh, it offered me a job. I became speech writer for you uh, care. You know, I said, I'll do this for a year and then I'll go back and finish my doctorate. Well, I wound up doing it for 30 years for uh, Governor Carey, um, Mario Cuomo, and then five chairman of Time Warner, Time Inc., AOL Time Warner. Um, you know, I, I found uh, I could support, a, I had the money now and I uh, could send my children to, I could get, give them shoes and send them to good schools and, um, so I just kept going. And, and one of the things was, that's how I kind of became a novelist because, you know, I had no ambitions to novel writing. 
Uh, it was like politics. I had no ambitions to that. But I was doing all this speech writing, and I realized, you know, I write this for other people, and they give it, and it's theirs. Uh, you know, Cuomo supposedly wrote all his own speeches, which was – that was the deal. I signed on to that deal, so I abide up by it. But I said, I'm going to leave this, and nobody lived even though I lived. I was alive. And that's when I conceived that I really wanted to write a book. And then I conceived I really wanted to write a novel. So it was that it was part of that was a sense of uh, anonymity that I would do all the stuff and have no, nothing to show for it. So Peter, I, I feel your pain. My my uh, artistic output is finely crafted emails. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, hey, I I don't want you to uh, get away without. Uh, get, Glossing over the Mario Cuomo experience. I'd like to get at that just a bit because, I mean, Mario Cuomo was known as a great orator. Uh, I ran into someone, I think I, I can't remember his name, a few years ago, who who was a speechwriter for Mario Cuomo. And I said, oh, I, I know Peter Quinn. He goes, oh, Peter. Peter wrote the big speeches. And and actually, Mario, strangely enough, this is the second interview in a row where Mario Cuomo has figured in because our last interview was with uh, Northwell CEO Michael Dowling, who was uh, a, a longtime cabinet member working closely. Yeah. And he, he, he described, he was aware of you and he described, wow, I uh, kind of comment like, uh, speech writing for Mario Cuomo must have been one of the most demanding jobs in the world. <laughs> Yeah, I'd say it was like an alien life from sitting in your head and sucking your brain out. But otherwise, it was fun. He was a wonderful guy to work for, really interesting character. Um, you know, I would say I never wrote about him, but all the people I knew and worked for show up in my books one way or another, or at least parts of them. He uh, he was he was really intellectual in a lot of ways, um, the way politicians aren't, very reflective, which is a strength and a and a weakness, he became known as um, Hamlet on the Hudson. And I always said if he was governor during the fiscal crisis, it'd still be going on. You see, he'd take every side and examine it. And, you know, Kerry was like much more cut and dry. Uh, and and I, I enjoyed working for him, but it's another thing. You get close, you know, a friend of mine once said, never, never get too close to, your, to a politician because their job is to keep power sometimes you get sucked into the thought, we're friends. Well, we're not friends. You're useful. And when you're not useful, if they're going to keep power, they have to get rid of you. Don't take it personally. I, I, I saw friends who were hurt. They thought, oh, you know, he's my friend. He's, I said, you know, he never told he was his friend. <laughs> Don't get it wrong. Right. Um, so, and it was, you know, I was very glad to have worked with him. It was a great experience. It was speech writing that taught me how to write. I never ever again thought of writing other than work and that you show up at the desk with a job to do. There's no romance to it. I don't know how romance ever got attached to writing because it's the most unromantic profession <laughs> there is. We somebody was uh, saying, you know, you should t teach a speech writing course. I said, yeah, uh, take me two minutes. I'll tell people, go in a room and take a hammer and nail and drive the nail into your head. You <laughs> 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 pretty much have a speech writing experience. Uh, you know, uh, one thing was the interesting, I didn't really deal with Andrew, not to go there, but um, yeah. I stayed close to Mario, and he, we we had a very, I, I honestly say, a very close relationship. And uh, Andrew was a whole different, Andrew was not Mario. I mean, he had certain, uh, he was like the was like the portrait of Dorian Gray, you know? Mario had all these virtues, but the, bl the blemishes showed up on Andrew, mostly only the blemishes. So... 
you know, again, everything is, but what the novelist realizes, I think, if, if you really, you, a real novelist dips into the depths and density of what it is to be human. And there's nothing simple there. Everything is complex. And you can't shy away from that. That's what I try to do with Banish Children of Eve. I don't, I don't give you, the closest I come to a villain is Capture. And I don't really go into his background. Uh, and then, you know, I wrote these detective novels, uh, Finn Dunn. And one is, I deal with the Holocaust and World War II. Um, and they're, the villains that appear never really, you never really, you see them at a distance. I don't get into them. I don't go into gruesome uh, explanations of who they are. They do what they do, but the books focus on the people who it happens to, not the people who are causing it. Peter, I think we're getting awful close to the time where we give you the rest of the day off. <laughs> uh, we, we mentioned the part where we offer the Seamus plug, <laughs> a chance uh, to give back to our guests by giving them a chance to uh, shill yeah. something that's uh, of significance to them. Uh, well, you know, I just will say this. Um, Mother's Day and Father's Day are coming up. What a better gifts than my books. People <laughs> love parents. You know, Banished Children of Eve is back in print, thanks to Fordham University, which bought the copyrights from my publisher, uh, which was bought. It's another publishing story. Uh, and then they went through, I wrote three detective novels, as you said earlier, around mm. this character, Fenton Dunn, who's an Irish-American detective. And the subplots of those three books, I'm really trying to tell the social history of New York, 18, uh, 1918 to 48, and then looking for Jimmy, and they'll all be in print. So uh, they'll be in penitentiaries, and, uh, <laughs> and if you're in the witness protection program, there's a discount price. You don't have to give your name. And, and then, you know, the, uh, I think Hour of the Cat was the first one. Yeah, obviously, yeah, that's yeah. the first one I read. And, uh, but the premise behind The Man Who Never Returned is, is yeah. unbelievable because you pretty much solved the mystery of yeah. what happened to Judge Crater. Most famous disappearance in American history, although people are beginning to forget about it. New York State Court Judge got in a cab on 43rd Street on August 6, 1930. He and the cab were never seen again. <laughs> And the the reason I was aware of who Judge Crater was, I have to trace back to uh, Three Stooges. Because <laughs> it showed up in a couple of Three Stooges episodes. They make a reference <laughs> to Judge Crater. I'm off for this movie, too. Peter, I, I, uh, I'll, let, I'll let Martin get back in here. But, I, you know, I have confessed to you that I, I the first time I tried to read Baddish Children of Eve, I didn't get too far. <laughs> I, I picked it up, and I think it was page eight when I ran into the word trans riparian and it wasn't even in my dictionary i said no this this i'm not ready for this volume yet but then about uh two years later i picked it up and it, i i don't know why but i couldn't put it down and i i just kept going right through all you know 600 odd pages some of them very odd but you know when i got to the end i said there's not a word there's not a word too many here there's not you know there's not a word that you'd, you'd i'd edit out so uh completely Completely blown away. And uh, another recommendation is do not lend your copy of Banished Children of Eve to every, anyone. You'll never get it back. Right. And uh, if you have an old copy, throw it out. and get Throw it, it out. Yeah. Somebody once came up to me in the Garden City Library and they wanted me to sign their book. I said, this is a library book. <laughs> and I said, yes. I said, well, what you, he said I'm going to tear the front page. Out. Oh, my God. <laughs> I said, no, you're not. I'll get the hell out of here. <laughs> Uh, Peter, I'd like to thank you for coming on. 
I think for my money, it is certainly the great novel of 19th century New York. And for listeners that haven't read it, do yourself a favor. Get yourself a copy of Spanish Children of Eve. You won't be sorry. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, John. Thank you, both of you. I really enjoyed this. Hey, John, I uh, really enjoyed that conversation with Peter. And obviously, you've known him a lot longer than I have. So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts were on the interview. But anything else you can tell us about Peter? Yeah, Peter's one of those guys. I, I kind of like, why is he my friend? <laughs> you know, he's he's just so accomplished. His writing is on such a different scale. His accomplishments just in his Spanish Children of Eve, if, if that was the only thing he did. Peter's really been a very important guy to me. He's been my personal guide into Irishness and opening the Irish-American door for me here in New York. When he founded the Irish-American Writers and Artists, he was the president. They had that idea of a kind of search for an Irish-American identity, as something distinct, related to, but distinct from an Irish identity. And that idea stuck with me. And it's really the seed for me for Irish stew, that search for the varying kinds of identities that relate back to Ireland. And he brings this out through his stories. And just as we were about to go on here, I thought in terms of the search for identity, you see it throughout his books. It's looking for Jimmy is directly a search for identity, search for Irish America. But even his book, it occurred to me, The Man Who Never Returned, his second mystery novel about the search for Judge Crater, who mysteriously disappeared. And it's another kind of search for identity. So this was a very important conversation for me. And I normally like to be extremely insulting to Peter Quinn, and we have a good time doing it. I think slagging is the the Irish term, but uh, this time... I'll play it straight. And it was just a real pleasure to have Peter Quinn on with us. Yeah. As I mentioned during the conversation, I tried to explain Banished Children of Eve to my family. And it's difficult to explain. It, to some degree, defies explanation. It has to be experienced. But what I will say is, if you get yourself a copy of this book, Unlike you, I haven't ventured into the full opus of Peter Quinn's work. That's something I'm looking forward to. But for this particular book, if you get a copy of Banished Children of Eve, you can expect to be plunged into the seething ferment that is 19th century New York. It's a Darwinian place. There is no safety nets. It's a visceral experience. And for my money, it is one of the great novels of New York City. And it shows the Irish in the center of things with all their warts, their wisdom, their kindness, and ugliness. And that's what I appreciate about Peter's writing is he's trying to pursue a truth through literature. He's a trained historian, so he brings that rigor to his writing. But he knows how to turn a phrase like the best Irish authors do. Yeah, it's very rich going back and looking at it again and things start popping out to you. And there's also the story of how he wrote this novel. This is a first novel. His first novel was an epic. And he did this while working a corporate America job. He just got himself up early in the morning. 
got working on it, fitted into his spare time, and then eventually was able to make this kind of writing his life's work. So we're going to give him another shameless plug here. Really recommend you pick up Banished Children of Eve, just republished by Fordham University Press. So that's the best place to get the book. And the book's been in print since 1994. And thanks to Fordham University Press, it continues on. Banished Children of Eve. Well, Martin, a lot of our listeners ask uh, how they can help spread the global Irish conversation. What do you think? Best thing people can do to help out the podcast is to simply share the episode. If you like what you've heard so far in this episode or other episodes, share it on social media, whether that's Facebook or whether that's Twitter or whether that's Instagram or share it via email or word of mouth. All of those things are going to help us out. And don't be shy about dropping us a note. Uh, You can do so on our website. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty. With Donald Bowens on drums, Cahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com